we used to say at BlackRock, it's not bad to take risk, but it's really bad not to understand the risk that you're taking. Mm. And so what, what, what I'm saying is it's not bad to do surgery, but it's really not to understand, bad to not understand the implications of the uh, surgery that you're doing. Yeah. That makes sense. Right? Yeah. Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, Jake P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Great. On today's episode of the Neurosurgery Podcast, it's a bit of a reunion of sorts. Uh, we have Greg Basil, who's a resident here in Miami, and John Paul, who's a medical student, who's, our, who's my co-host. And, you know, they've kind of been itching to record this episode about something that's, I think, dear to all of our hearts. And they really want to talk about the philosophy of neurosurgery. Okay. Welcome back, guys. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, great to be here. So, Greg, we've had a, a few papers over the past year or so kind of dealing with conceptual ideas, philosophical ideas, kind of the, the background and the underpinnings about spinal neurosurgery. Um, why don't you kind of briefly just tell us where your head's at about those papers, about other ideas that are floating around, how you approach this field? Yeah, so, you know, I think that the genesis of all this, where this all started was, you know, I had to give a grand rounds a couple of years ago, and, and uh, Dr. Wang and I had been talking about this a lot, you know, and because I had a career in finance before I came here. I worked at a company called BlackRock, and we can talk briefly about that Just later. Just a little company called BlackRock. Yeah, yeah small place. <laughs> um, but, you know, Dr. Wang kept telling me that I needed to give a presentation where I kind of synthesized my experience in the financial world and, and how that changed my perspective on neurosurgery and spinal neurosurgery. So I spent a lot of time putting that together. And that talk, uh, I think you were sitting in the audience, oh, yeah. John Paul, during that talk, and you kind of approached me afterwards and, and kind of mentioned that you had had some similar, uh, you know, similar feelings and similar thoughts, and we kind of put our heads together, and that's, that's where our two papers came out. But to kind of to, to distill it down, uh, I think it is kind of useful to just talk for a brief second about the history of BlackRock, because I think it will come up later. Uh, BlackRock uh, was a firm that was founded relatively recently in the 1980s by a guy named Larry Fink. And... Uh, what Larry noticed was at that time that a lot of uh, companies were starting to trade more structured products. It was a relatively new thing. And a very simple example is a mortgage-backed security. So let's say you or your mother or father originate or buy a mortgage. Your bank doesn't want to hold a thousand mortgages on their on their um, balance sheet because obviously there's a lot of risk of default of prepayment. So they will go ahead and sell those, and those will go to another bank who will then put them in a mortgage-backed security, and that asset will then have uh, the uh, cash flows from the original mortgage passed through. Now, all of this is kind of, we're wondering, where is this going? Where am I going with all this right now? Well, what, what Larry Fink noticed was that a lot of people were buying these assets, but not a lot of people understood what they were actually worth or had a really good way to value them. And so he founded BlackRock with the idea of doing very complex, very detailed risk analytics and purchasing and trading those assets based on that. So as I began to think about that, you know, it, it brought me to neurosurgery and, and spinal uh, surgery and, and thinking about how we determine when and when not to do surgery and, and the risk analytics that we use. And I mean, because, of, well, so, so for some people may not remember the financial crisis. Some people may be listening that are too young to have lived through it. Yeah, so, so, so a lot of my work was actually in a group called the Financial Markets Advisory Group uh, during 2007 and 2008. And 
was basically a, a, a large scale collapse of financial markets that was precipitated by uh, subprime mortgages, basically. And, and, you know, this problem very simply put was that there were a lot of homes, uh, a lot of people got mortgages they couldn't afford with low teaser rates. Uh, they were told that home prices would go up forever. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's not true. And um, they were told that don't worry about, you know, two years from now when your teaser rate resets because you'll just sell your house. It'll be worth a lot more. And of course, when home prices went down, that precipitated a massive decline, flood the market with a supply of houses, home prices went down further, defaults occurred, and all these banks that were holding all these securitized products, mortgage-backed securities, collateralized debt, CDO squared, um, these, these assets that were supposedly worth tens of millions were actually worth nothing. Mm. And so I became a little bit obsessed with this idea of bubbles and what, what creates a bubble and what is a bubble. And JP, you and I worked on this paper where we talked about this. I think it'll be coming out relatively soon. I don't think it's out yet. Sure. But this idea of, of what a bubble is, and, and maybe you can talk about your perspective you know, on that and, and what we discussed. Yeah, well, this, this was an idea that I kind of had following your grand rounds, and it, it was percolating in my mind for a while. But unfortunately, I didn't have the financial wherewithal to really bring it to fruition, which is why it's been such a pleasure working with you on it. But uh, when I was first coming up in medical school and started working with Dr. Wang and you and writing these papers, thinking about the, the landscape of spine surgery, it, it occurred to me that as people get older, they obviously have greater rates of degenerative spinal disease, and some proportion of those patients will have surgical disease. Um, with all these papers we've written together, Dr. Wang, about minimally invasive surgery, in the introduction, in the discussions, I found myself citing over and over again this census data projecting an increased average age of the U.S. population. So then I, I'm writing these papers, I'm thinking to myself, well, the age of the population is going up, there's going to be more senior citizens, there will necessarily be more people requiring spinal surgery. It reimburses very well today, spine surgery. Instrumented spinal surgery reimburses very, very well. Um, and so as the demand for these procedures continues to go up and up and up, that high reimbursement rate eventually has to plateau. And of course, much like the folks in 2005, we thought this, people were thinking this is a great thing, right? I mean, there's all these houses selling, everybody's making money. Seems like a wonderful thing. Right, right? and that's when you talk about the conditions, what are the conditions for a bubble? And I'm not the first to talk about this, or JP's not the first to talk about this. People talk about this in relation to healthcare all the time. Right. We're kind of... Uh, maybe the first or at least the first published talking about it in relation to spine surgery, but but what are the conditions for a bubble? And that's easy access to credit or liquidity, um, assets that are trading uh, at a higher value than their actually intrinsic value is worth, and information asymmetry. And if you think about it, in spine surgery, all of those conditions exist. So what's the easy access well, to credit? Well, except yeah. maybe the middle one. I mean, the first and last one, I totally agree. But the last one is one, one that I think we could dispute, but I think I, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, so it's, it's funny, actually, and I hope he doesn't mind me mentioning this. My old boss, Craig Phillips, actually sent him this paper. So he was the head of his financial markets advisory group and actually went to work for the U.S. Treasury. And I sent him the paper, and I said, so what do you think about this paper comparing the financial crisis in a bubble to a bubble in spine surgery? And he said, well, I like it, but I don't know, is, is the comparison a little bit forced? And, you know, JP and I talked about it a lot, and it, and it may be a little bit. In some ways the bubble isn't exactly the same because the bursting of the financial bubble was a very dramatic event and there was tightening of credit. People couldn't get loans anymore and there's massive decline in home prices. So very likely we won't see something like that, something dramatic like that happen in, in the world of spine surgery. But what we will see, what will a bursting of the bubble mean? It might mean that it's much more difficult for patients to get approved for spine surgery because insurance companies change their standards. It might mean that mm. reimbursement changes for spine surgery. Um, you know, so we don't know exactly what form that will take and it will likely be less dramatic, but we thought it was important to grab people's attention and we thought the comparison was apt enough yeah. to discuss it in those terms. And, and of course, it's, going, it's not going to rock the boat for society as much as the housing market crash will because 
everyone has a house, but how many people actually get spine surgery? Well, I, you know, I don't want to stop you guys midstream, but let me just go to this something, something that maybe a lot of our more senior listeners, I should say our adult listeners are, are thinking, which is, okay, maybe like the housing crisis, the houses, they have intrinsic value all the time, even, even during the collapse, even when the mortgage, right. mortgage-backed securities, right. you call them structured products, had zero value, the houses still had value. Right. So the spine surgery has intrinsic value, and maybe it's over or undervalued at any given time. And that might be similar, but maybe you could explain this, because you're a financial guy, you know, at least at that time, and I think doctors don't look at it that way, right? Well, they don't look at so, value as perception. So this is perfect, because yeah. we, we get into this in a lot of the discussions that okay. we've had and the, the papers we're working on even currently, Greg, why don't you talk a bit about either from the medical or from the financial perspective or both, what, what is value? We well, keep talking about yeah. it. Talk that's, to us about that's value. That's a good question. What is value in spine surgery? So, so I think for a second it's useful to talk about the, the concept of absolute value and relative value and, and the concept of time value. So in, in finance, you can model just about anything if you understand time value of money. So, so any assets value today is just a present value of the future cash flow is discounted back today at the interest rate. So well, you, that's a, hold on. Well, that's, you got to well, back that a little bit. Hold on. Okay, so, so, so fine. <laughs> let's, say, let's say it's a mortgage. It's a simple asset, right? So what's the value of the mortgage today? Well, there's some interest rate that, that, that the money to give the mortgage was, was uh, loaned at, right? And then there's the payments from the mortgage, the prepayments. Or prepayments are schedule payments. Either right. way, the cash flows that come in from the mortgage. So if you say it's a 30-year mortgage and you project out your payments every year, so you'd have to have a model to project prepayment and default. And if you project out those payments for the next 30 years and you discount them back at the rate that that money was borrowed at, you can come up with a value today. So the question is for any spine surgery, what is what are the future cash flows and what are cash flows? So we're not talking about money, right? I'm, I'm not saying that what, what are the, the true economic value. Talking about oh, yeah. health value, what yeah. is the value to the patient? Or society. So this actually dovetails really nicely with the other philosophical paper that we talked about, which was the farmer and the hunter. And so the question is, are years of quality life today the same as years of quality life in the future? So in finance, we say cash today is always better than cash a year from now right. or two as, years from now. As you explained to me, a dollar is not a dollar, right? If I have one dollar today, versus $1 a year from now, that dollar I have today, I can invest in that year. Exactly. So I can turn that into more money between now and next year. So if we're talking about someone who has spine symptoms, either weakness or pain that limits their function, it's you know keeping them in bed longer than they need to be, keeping them from working to their fullest, um, what is the difference between relieving those symptoms today versus in 10 years? Exactly. So there is some value right. to, to early intervention to getting people back and working. By that same token, if you do a huge surgery and you put someone out of work for six months or seven months at, at a prime a point in their life and they maybe never recover back to their previous level, is that a good thing? Right. And so that's the concept of, that's this whole idea of incremental surgery, of, of doing either the, the minimum amount to get them back and working. And what is, what is the future value of those cash flows in terms of patient value and quality of life value versus doing a massive surgery now, putting them out for seven months, and then maybe never getting them back to their original function. Yeah. So, 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 so briefly, let, let's not assume that everyone listening to this reads every paper out there. Could, cause, just because you mentioned the farmer and the hunter, can you kind of define, that's, a, that's another financial concept from sales, I think you told me. So Yeah, you, that, that's more of a marketing sales concept. And I think actually that was something, to, to be honest with you, that the genesis of that particular paper wasn't um, my experience in the financial world. It was actually a conversation with Dr. Wang that Dr. Wang had in the OR, and he talked about how some surgeons are farmers and other surgeons are hunters. And that kind of uh, struck a chord with me, and, and that later led to a conversation with you and I, and ultimately led to this paper. But the idea is basically that there's two kinds of people, and for, this, for the purpose of this paper, we're talking about surgeons, right? And so there's the one surgeon who's the farmer, and he tills the land. He only takes what's necessary. Um, he has a kind of a, a good relationship with the earth. 
And, and then there's a hunter. The hunter is, you know, he stalks his prey, he kills it, he hangs it on, a, on the wall as a trophy, and he never come and, comes and revisits it or cares for it, right? It's gone. It's and nothing, by the way, this is not a political statement against hunters because we know, like, yeah, yeah, there was a hunter. It's a metaphor. It's a metaphor, right? It's a, it's a metaphor. Yeah, right. Okay. So the idea is that the hunter in the surgical world is a guy who does, who kind of prunes the pathology, so to speak. He does a small surgery now that, that actually uh, pays dividends in terms of oh, patients. Oh, the farmer. The farmer. I'm sorry, the farmer. Yeah. The farmer. Who does a small surgery now that pays dividends to the patient versus the hunter who does this huge surgery that's, that's attempting to correct all the major pathology, but, but maybe, you know, buys them a couple of years, but years on the line they have more and more problems that the hunter then really doesn't want to deal with anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. So so we're advocating the idea of being being a farmer. And we and that idea, again, is is kind of grounded in this idea of understanding the present value of your future cash flows. And so it, we used to say at BlackRock, it's not bad to take risk, but it's really bad not to understand the risk that you're taking. Mm. And so what, what what I'm saying is it's not bad to do surgery, but it's really not to understand bad to not understand the implications of uh, the surgery that you're doing. Yeah. That makes sense. Right. Yeah. And so so I think that's how that fits in. So you can think about this in a lot of different ways. There's a macro, the micro. But if you start thinking about you know, the, the, the implications of your surgery, we talk about um, this idea that in order to be really good, we have to have a lot of really good data, right? And, and again, this is not something unique to us. This is what we're saying. Part of the solution to this problem is to develop these really strong analytical tools. I know you've done some work with machine-based learning. That's one way to identify which patients will benefit and which won't, which patients are good targets and which ones are not. To develop advanced imaging technologies, better ways of understanding, being able to see the pain and decide which surgeries will benefit the patient and won't, and allow us to do that calculation of, of present value of future cash flows for the patient. And the other side of technology in all of this is that, um, you know, we're talking about gradually building up these surgical interventions instead of going for the one big procedure Modern techniques, modern technology and spine allows us to do that. The minimally invasive techniques that you, Dr. Wang, use and surgeons across the country use allow you to have these conversations and, and weigh out these options for someone. Whereas 20 years ago, maybe if you, you looked at someone with a deformity, you, you could only fix all of it at once or none of it. Whereas mm-hmm. today, you yeah. can take a modular approach. Yeah. You can take a modularized step-by-step, work your way up that spinal deformity, get them a few years until they need another surgery, get them a few years until they need the next surgery. Even if they end up with a long construct, you get them there bit by bit. And now that's an option to you, whereas 20 years ago, surgeons might not have had that in their toolkit. Right, it's either surgery or no surgery, right? Exactly. But let me ask you guys a question, because you may see it differently than me. Does this at all apply to cranial work, cranial surgery or pathology? I, I mean, I think you could apply this to just about anything. Like, okay. you know, again, in the financial world, I could value uh, aircraft loans or student loans or mortgage-backed securities by just modeling out cash flows. So I think you can apply that same philosophy to cranial surgery. I think in some cases, cranial surgery is a little clearer. You have a brain tumor, it needs to come out. You have a brain tumor, mm-hmm. it's, it's not resectable. You need to proceed with radiation therapy. So I, I think it applies, but it's probably less impactful than it is in our field of spine surgery. I think all of this, and, and you could hear this and think that we're being critical of people who do big surgeries. We're, that's actually not the intent. I think, I like to think of this as a whole Jiro dreams of sushi kind of thing. This continual self-improvement, right? You can make sushi your whole life, but you're never gonna make perfect sushi. You can do spine surgery your whole life and never do the perfect surgery and know what the perfect surgery is for the patient, but we should always try to be better for the sake of our patients. And it's thinking about how we do that. And that goes to the concept we talk about of alpha. What is alpha? So in the financial world, we talk about beta and alpha. So beta is market return. So if you invest in a, in a basket of securities and mimic the market, you're going to get market return. That's beta. So nobody... I don't even get that, so... Right. <laughs> <laughs> talk I'll to go me. for beta. Talk, to me, beta. talk to me after okay, the recording. Okay. 
but but you know, so nobody judges a portfolio portfolio manager based on beta because anybody can get beta by investing in a basket like Spider, whatever securities okay. are. Not trying to plug any particular yes. brand, whatever <laughs> ETFs, but but uh, alpha is is return above and beyond what the market is making. So so portfolio managers are obsessed with generating generating alpha. We use this from generating alpha. How do you generate alpha? And so if you start thinking about that in spine, how do we generate alpha? How do we be better? And it's not necessarily better than the other guy doing spine surgery. It's just be better for the patient, right? How do we do that? How do we generate excess return for the patient? And right. so so the, all of these discussions are trying to get to an answer to that particular question. And I think if you're talking about the patient, it's one answer. If you're talking about the healthcare system, it's another answer. So, you know, part of all of this discussion led to some other research that I'm currently working on with time-driven activity-based costing. And that's something introduced by a gentleman named Howard Kaplan from Harvard. And he talks about this idea of, again, of us not really understanding what it costs, actually physically costs to care for a patient in the hospital, but because we're using all these crude metrics like ratio ratio of uh, cost to charges and things like that. And he advocates actually allocating all of the costs in a hospital based on time spent. And so we don't need to go into that because it's a totally different in, in discussion. But again, the whole goal of that is to improve the efficiency in a hospital system with the end goal of improving the patient experience and improving the patient outcome. Do, do you guys think, I mean, look, I'm, I'm going to be retired way before you guys. So, you know, like you got me head, my head spinning because I thought I was smart about some of this stuff. But clearly, Greg, you, you, forgotten more than I'll ever know, but do you think it's worthwhile for surgeons to even invest the time to understand these concepts? Um, well, you don't need to, you know, I'm talking about it in these terms because that's what I know, uh -huh. right? So I, I'm discussing it. I'm using financial terms to talk about um, concepts in spine surgery because that's familiar to me. You don't need to use those terms to understand what I'm saying. So for me, this is a vehicle to deliver this message. But, but I don't think you need to spend time, you know, buying a financial textbook or trying to study for your CFA, you know, to, <laughs> yeah. to really understand these concepts. I think all of us can sit around the table and understand what we're talking about here. And, and I think conceptually, it, it is important for every spine surgeon to think about or any spine surgeon that cares about the patients, which we like to think is all the spine surgeons in the country. Yeah, I mean, I'd say you're right. This is just a vehicle to talk about these concepts. This is a language you understand. Right. So these are, these are the metaphors we're using. But at the end of the day, all we're really advocating is do the right thing. And that sounds simple, but the problem is, what is the right thing? Right. And in a field like spine, you know, everyone always jokes. You get 10 of the best spine surgeons in the country, show them a case, show, show them images, you get 10 different plans. Right. All of them are evidence-based. All of them have the authority of a big name in the field. So when that is the state of the field right now, trying to figure out the right thing for a single patient in a single clinic visit can be daunting. And so right. we, have to, we have to think about medically what is right, financially what is right, morally what's right for that person who's trusting you with their life and well-being. But I know that every, everybody sort of in my age category listening to this is thinking automatically about the default mode, which is, okay, what does this mean about the healthcare economics of what we're doing? Because spine is so important, um, not just spine surgery, but spine care is so important financially and so uh, at a societal level, right? right? It's the number one cause of disability in every major part of the world. And so I always like to tell my patients in Sub-Saharan Africa, the number one cause of disability is spinal disease. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so let me ask you a different way then, because I, because I don't know that everybody has uh, an opinion on this, but um, what do you think is going to happen to us? Let's talk about spine specifically, because mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's 
what we've been talking about. What do you think is going to happen in, in 10, 15, 20 years? I'll start with you, Greg, and then I want to know from John, what do you think? So in terms of what happens to us as spine surgeons? Yeah, like are we going to be so restricted in practice? Or are there going to be standardized ways of doing things? Are we going to be a free-for-all? Are we going to go to like cash-based system? What's, what do you think is going to – I mean, we're in an election year, yeah. right? Everybody's got ideas about how this is going to play out. And spine's a big piece of it, even yeah. though I don't say it, right? What do you think is going to happen when you're, you're me? You're in practice in yeah. 20 years, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't expect, like anything, I don't expect any seismic changes in the way we practice spine, to be completely honest with you. I think there will be certain people who continue to practice it the way they've been practicing for the past 10, 15, 20 years. But I do think our generation will slowly begin to change things because I do think we are a generation that's driven by data and evidence-based medicine. And, and it's not to say that the old generation of spine surgeons is not, but we're kind of inculcated in it from like a very young age. And... Um, so I do think you're going to see a lot of people being more scientific about the way that they practice fine surgery. Now, in terms of what's going to happen politically, I think that's an incredibly complex question. I'm not going to pretend that I have any kind of insight into that. But I do think, I do think you're going to see a lot more evidence-based practice of spine surgery going forward. And, and that will most likely lead to more standardized approaches to certain pathologies. But again, I don't think that's going to happen like immediately and overnight. I think it'll probably be a slow shift and like a, kind of a slow changing of the guard. Okay, that, that's fair. That's very optimistic compared to what I would pose. But I, but again, I'm not. Maybe I'm wrong. I mean, I don't. No, you know, no, no. I hope just... you're right. But I, but I, I think. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I'm, I'm asking you because I truly don't know. How about you, JP? What do you think? I think that's one of the great heartbreaks when I look forward in um, in the time span for what my own career will comprise. I think inevitably we will have to move towards some kind of more firm and established guidelines for care and that I jokingly say heartbreak because like many people I think who go into neurosurgery I don't like being told what to do mm -hmm. right you always compare yeah. neurosurgery to Navy SEALs and it's a, it's a team of misfits thing right right it's the the outsider the lone wolf the the one who balks at authority um, who often gravitates towards this field where practitioners are so independent and they're often so independent because unlike other fields of medicine, we have lower levels of evidence for our practices because it would be unethical to obtain a higher level of evidence. You can't do randomized trials in neurosurgical disease as easily as you can for, say, headache, right? Mm -hmm. um, be that as it may, as we do generate larger and larger databases, um, we are a much more data-driven generation, as you said, Greg, and I, I think as more and more studies come out looking at these databases, as more and more um, elegance is put into the design for prospective randomized trials, we will inevitably, I think, move more toward an established algorithm for care. Um, maybe, I'm, I'm, sh I'm sure, not as stringent as like an ACLS algorithm, right, where it's do this, then do that, then do that, then do that. But certainly some of the, the big questions out there, fuse or not to fuse for a given pathology. I think, I mean, that, that's been a hot topic for, for years now, right? But eventually, I think the field as a whole will have to come down on one side or the other for a lot of these A, B binary questions, at least in terms of a general guideline. And, and I think a lot of this, the big X factor here is, as you mentioned, Dr. Wayne, I mean, what happens politically, what happens with our healthcare system, how reimbursement is structured, because that, right. that will inevitably change things. So that's the big X factor, you know, that's going to change whatever 
uh, JP and I say whether or not we're right or wrong is going to depend on that. And, and reimbursement obviously, patterns are going right, to dictate. We know right. that reimbursement yeah. patterns dictate. So I was recently introduced to this concept of OK Boomer. You're not Boomer? OK, OK. You're, you guys are working too hard. So, yeah, so like this, this, it's a meme, right? Yeah. But it's so popular now. So the OK Boomer movement and look, we're, we're starting an election uh, process, right? The Iowa caucuses was yeah. today, or yesterday, I should say. And so, you know, this, I, the concept of OK Boomer is something like this, like the millennials and who's behind millennials? Um, Gen, oh. Generate, is it Gen, Gen X? Is, no, I'm Gen X. Are you Gen X? So then millennials are you guys, and then Gen Z, like my kids. The Gen Z people are coming out of high school now and kind of, yeah. you know, they're behind millennials, right? Technically, you guys are in the millennial category by age, right? So the OK Boomer thing... He always I, says this and it breaks my heart. No, no, it's not, it's not a negative. I'm not sure which one I fall. I always thought of myself as a Gen yeah. Xer, but I don't know. Are you? Hold I you. think so. I'm 35. You're right on the cusp. I'm, I'm like, I'm like straddling both worlds, I guess. Millennial Xer. <laughs> so I know that a lot of our listeners are younger, right? So yeah. they're, they're, they know about OK Boomer. We can is, demonstrate. Tell me how hard you worked when you were my age. <laughs> <laughs> it was so... And I'm not a boomer. Right. It was so hard. I had to walk uh, uphill in the snow both ways. <laughs> Okay, boomer. Right. So the concept is, Greg, that the boomer generation, they were the hippies, right? So the generation, like the, the greatest generation, World right, War II, right. the, the greatest generation. Mm-hmm. Then there was the boomers. Right. Then there was the millennial, I'm sorry, the, uh, the Gen Xers. That's Gen Xers. We're supposedly going to be failures. Right. So we were the ones that were very pessimistic. We thought we were going to be nuked. Right, right, right. We, did, we yeah. lived with drills and we, we hated right. everything. It was very pessimistic. And then there was the ge- millennials. Right. And they're the, the children of boomers, sort of. Right. And then my children are the Gen Z, which is even more different. Mm. But the OK Boomer movement is like the boomer generation ruined everything. They destroyed the environment. They created the financial crisis, all of them, right? right? right, right. And they did all these things. And then now, the, now, we're, now you guys are left to live this, to, right? To clean up the mess. Right. So you could make the analogy in spine surgery, too. Right. That the boomers in in spine surgery, I, I, you could dispute this, but some people would say that they were the ones that ruined spine surgery. But I, I, I'm not saying that's right, the right, case. Right. I, I understand. You yeah. understand what I'm saying? Yeah. So let me have you guys make a plea, each of you, because you're different in age, to say, okay, look, in your generation, what can you do, right? Besides do the right thing, right? What do you think you should be involved in politics? You know, what what should you do that will will secure the future of access for our patients to do the right thing? Right, because we all want to do the right thing. Yeah, and I think that that was the spirit of the of, of our paper talking about the the bursting of the bubble, not to, to say that there's going to be some catastrophic event that some I guess Gen X type concept, but it but it's really a call to action, a call it, to conversation. Exactly, to have people talk about this and and think about this, and and you know I'm really encouraged. After our farmer and the hunter paper, I got a number of emails from neurosurgeons across the country telling me how pleased they were with the publication and what we were saying. And I got message. one today. Did you really? I got a text today. Yeah. yeah. Which, which is really nice to hear, and it's really encouraging. And I think that that's a very positive note, you know, to end this whole thing on, is that I do think a lot of people's hearts are in the right place. So then, so, but, you know, obviously your heart being in the right place isn't enough, right? You need to take action. You need to do something. And that's what we're talking about. And I think it depends on where you're at in life and what your skill set is. And as is the case with anything in life, you need to leverage that. And if, you're, if your interest is in big data, then you should be doing that. And you should be applying it to spine surgery. If your interest is in politics, by all means, enter the political arena and advocate for these kind of things that we're talking about. But I think it's leveraging your own personal skill set to, to kind of to do the right thing for the patient in the end. That's the goal. That's what we're all here for. Yeah. I, w- I would say to whatever extent a person can, and, and now I, I realize I'm the young guy speaking to who knows what level of listener right now, but we just, just uh, last week, we, we put up our interview with Dr. Jacques Morcos, and he talked about metacognition mm-hmm. and thinking about thinking. And I, I would say my plea is for whatever amount of time you can in a day, in a week, 
Um, whatever your job is, whatever level you are, take a moment to not just do your job, but think about how you're doing your job. Think about why you're doing the things you're doing um, the way you do them. Is it getting the outcomes you want? Is it, again, doing yeah. the right thing and, and, and getting the right effect? I think, I think that's a great point, JP. And I think that was a point of this, actually, this whole episode of the podcast was just that the idea of even just talking about this is positive. We think it's good and it's going to move us in the right direction. So I, I think that's a great point. Yeah, and on that note, I would like to encourage any listeners out there. We have actually, we're going to get to 20,000 listens. And I can tell we have at least uh, 600, 500 regular listeners, at mm. least, minimum. Um, please email us, right, at neurosurgerypodcast at gmail.com right. and tell us your ideas. We'd love to talk about this in the podcast, I think. Don't you think? Absolutely. I mean, we, you know, we, we pitched this episode, Philosophy and Spine Surgery. That People will laugh at that phrase, right? right but right. it's something that should be thought about, even if only for a few minutes, to consider you know, the implication and the intellectual underpinnings of what we're doing every day and why. Greg, JP, it's been great getting you back together again, and I think I learned a lot today. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Thanks.